Have you ever wondered what it takes to be successful in the world we live in? Not to be considered successful, but to actually be successful. I have, and I want to know what it is that separates these people from the rest of us. Welcome to From the Top, where I, Rahul Sharma, a student of leadership at TISS Mumbai, will attempt to interview some of the most interesting and successful leaders amongst us mere mortals. These conversations will cover their journeys, their ambitions and their learnings along the way. Happy listening and happy learning. All right, uh, hello everybody and uh, welcome to From the Top, which is a new podcast that uh, we are recording today with Ravi Raj. Uh, Ravi is founder and CEO of Authentica, a unique value-based organization in the study abroad space. Authentica partners with leading universities and organizations to arrange enriching immersions for their students and employees in Asia and beyond, but primarily in Asia. Ravi has over 20 years of experience in consulting, non-profits, IT and travel, and also has an Ivy League MBA from the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. Uh, he's a fitness freak and beer lover in addition to cultivating a keen interest in self-improvement. Let's hear more about Ravi in this pilot episode of From the Top. Hi, Ravi. Can you greet Hi, Rahul. Hi, Ravi. Great to have you here finally and to be recording this pilot episode. I'm super honored to be one of your early guests on this podcast. Amazing, amazing. Thank you for the invitation. Amazing. So uh, let me just uh, brief the listeners. Uh, mostly my best friend and their dogs so <laughs> at this stage so we'll just i'll just brief them about the format that i'll be using for this interview so uh, we'll be using the three questions format uh, which is basically the three questions are where do you come from uh, where do you where are you going and what have you learned along the way so where do you come from is that essentially a background and you know a se- the series of decisions that led the guest to where they are today and where are you going is basically about the future plans and how they plan to get there what is their strategy etc and what have they learned is of course the part where we get the lessons and the insights from the journey that the guest has been on so uh, ravi let's start straight off the bat uh, let's get into your background and where you come from where you were born you know those kind of questions absolutely rahul so i come from chennai i was um, born in tamil nadu and uh, grew up there spent majority of my childhood there i went to college in coimbatore which is also in tamil nadu um, my childhood <clears throat> was in a lower middle class family my mom was a school teacher and my father was a factory supervisor uh, in the valve unit of tvs motors back in chennai so growing up i always had <clears throat> two identities one that was defined by my socioeconomic status and another that was more defined by my thought processes inside they i felt you know they were a little bit divergent you know uh, the life i lived around me uh, was very different from the li- the life i lived in my head and uh, to to be honest uh, you know i spent a majority of my of my life trying to really resolve that because you want to kind of 
you know get the environment around you and the environment inside you as close as possible um i guess in 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 tangible terms i did my schooling in chennai uh, i was reasonably good student um, which is a little bit of a challenge because you don't have to you know i didn't have to work too hard to do above average and you know be in the top 10% or so so <laughs> i didn't work too hard um <laughs> did yeah. my engineering in um, in electronics and telecommunications in coimbatore uh, again same thing i was above average with with very little effort so i felt like why bother putting in more effort i didn't really ra- realize the value of uh, you know um, effort in education much later in life which i'll talk about so my initial career port entry was in software engineering with wipro i worked with them for a couple of years in bangalore uh, tasted you know life abroad so i really wanted to kind of move and live all over the world so i quit my job with wipro and moved to california to wow. to live in the us i spent the majority of my professional life um i would say in the us mostly in the new york new jersey connecticut and uh, california regions i also did my mba like you mentioned at the tax school of business um which is in New Hampshire and I worked in strategy consulting in the San Francisco and Boston offices of a company called Oliver Wyman. So that's kind of a brief pre pre entrepreneurship journey for me. Um I can talk more about my transition maybe later on. Sure sure sure. Uh, but let's take it uh, from the top uh, like the podcast's name. So very interesting mm. you said about your childhood uh, wherein you would mm. like to resolve to you know conflicting identities uh one which was coming from the background or uh, the environment in which you were and one is the mm. person that you actually are so mm. i mean we are all trying to do that right at some point mm-hmm. like mm. a majority of our lives is essentially spent trying to integrate our uh, bipolar identities in that sense <laughs> so yeah could you tell, could you tell me a little bit more about that as to you know how your environment like what what how what effect did that have on your identity how was it how were the two conflicting essentially yeah yeah it's um yeah i'll be happy to share basically uh, see there were a lot of fights in my house about money right so uh, i was the only child but still we we were always resource constrained um so my mom you know you did tuitions in the evening to make uh, extra money my dad would work extra shifts and uh, pretty much most uh, most uh, yeah i would say arguments and fights in the house revolved around resources you know and most of the time that resource was money um so i kind of grew up in an environment where where um, you know um more was good and more specifically of money was good uh that was a, that was sort of my uh, i guess uh, external environment but uh, i always was a dreamer as a kid all my thoughts were about you know this transcending uh, all of these you know uh, everything that i would dream of in my head was world class you know oh, sure. it, it's uh, you know starting with uh, you know uh, star trek uh, you know which was what i used grew up watching um where i would devise a lot of uh, you know communication devices with with matchboxes you know the flip phones kind of stuff way before motorola came out with it or when i started playing tennis you know i i, would, I had my 
I had my uh, route to the Grand Slam mapped out in terms of who I who I need to beat when and all that stuff, right? So uh, obviously the the reality of the life around me didn't really kind of facilitate any of that uh, to a large extent, uh, except for maybe support for whatever education that my folks could afford. So obviously that defined a large part of my childhood. But um, uh, you some you sometimes you know. Um, at that age, basically, you kind of have to deal with, uh, to a certain extent, the, you know, the cards that you've been given. But obviously, there comes a point in everybody's life when, when you no longer have to be defined or restricted to those, uh, to those, um, you know, cards. So that point for me came, uh, you know, after I graduated from engineering and uh, had had a lot more opportunities that my parents had, and a lot of my, to be honest, a lot of my peer group had. Um, because we lived through the IT boom and, you know, <laughs> we used to have a saying back then that trespassers would be recruited. That's how much in oh. demand engineers were. <laughs> so yeah. so I ro- rode that wave, you know, so that kind of got me out of uh, that loop. And I'm sure it did for millions of uh, Indians at that point. But, uh, you know, I was one of them as well. Absolutely. I can completely relate, you know, being a single child as well and, you know, with the situation at home. I mean, the India that we kind of grew up in, I mean, of course, you are about 10 or 12 years uh, more senior to me, but uh, primarily the country that we grew up in and my parents grew up in, especially, was one defined by resource constraints, you know, being the first real generation post-independence. So I'm sure uh, that kind of microeconomic situation also played into the environment that we we were subjected to. So uh, yeah, so you spoke about riding the IT boom, and uh, that that was like luck, right? That that was something that uh, the environment kind of made up for what the cards that you had received. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. So. Yeah, so then uh, how, like, how did you go about, uh, you know, your dreams were not in, like, to be a software engineer, right? Like, Uh, not at all, actually. Yeah, Uh, it's funny when I look back, uh, look back at, uh, you know, what I really enjoyed doing as a kid, you know, basically, my favorite uh, book was the Atlas, you know, I would devour the Atlas, I knew you know, where every country was, you know, what every country's capital was. So I would just kind of be enamored by the Atlas and my Atlas was so worn out just by within one year of me kind of having it in my hands. And and my hobbies were stamp collecting and coin collecting. And this was stamps and coins from both India as well as abroad. So I didn't know that it meant something, you know, at that point. Um, uh, But now looking back at my career, it seems to it's, it's almost like a prophecy that was uh, going to be fulfilled that I would end up, uh, you know, running a company, starting and running a company that involved a lot of travel, which is what we do with Authentica. It's experiential learning in, in the international education space. So, yeah, that was my dream, I guess. Uh, you know, I really enjoyed uh, enjoyed um, dreaming about travel. Um, didn't really have a lot of money to travel. So what we would do back back then was just uh, travel locally, you know, we'd take my bicycle with friends and go 40 kilometers out of the city, which was a big deal 
you know, back yeah, then. I mean, I remember oh, going on those bicycle rides and it felt like, you know, we were on a different planet altogether, just 40 kilometers. Totally. Right. Yeah. Every, every kilometer away from parents and social influences felt like, you know, freedom. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Those, those, those were different times, you know, before cell phones and any, I mean, yeah, there was no way of getting in touch with us if we were just like, you know, more than two kilometers away from home, actually, at that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, so let's move on and speak about uh, your experience in leaving the country, you know, so getting out of your environment and out of India and lining up in California. What did that feel like? And, you know, how was that experience? That's quite interesting because uh, it uh, it wasn't a very hard decision to make back then. Uh, um, probably less so now, but there was a huge uh, exodus of uh, engineers in particular from India to primarily to the US, but also to other countries back in the time. Uh, many of you not recall, but there was something called Y2K, uh, the year 2000 around the corner oh, that sure. everybody was predicting doomsday in terms of uh, systems collapsing uh, and stuff. So. Uh, there was there was a lot of demand for engineers, and I was fortunate enough to have opportunities to to work in to work in the U.S. Um, and the thinking for me around that time was, you know, look, it's a, it's a ticket to economic uh, economic freedom and financial independence, right? Mm. And um, more so, um, yeah, definitely for my family, uh, including you know, for me as well, but more importantly for my family, right? That, that okay. economic independence meant a lot, and it 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 mattered a lot for me to be able to provide for my family that way. In addition to that, like I told you, my favorite books uh, being, book being the Atlas and my hobbies being stamps and coins from abroad. So traveling abroad, you know, felt like coming home. Um, The other thing is weirdly enough, I grew up, uh, my mom was a teacher and she encouraged me to, you know, read a lot of books when I was young and all the books were in English. So unfortunately today I can't read in any other language, sadly, but uh, what it meant was that, uh, I know I grew up, uh, you know, despite the environment that I grew up in, uh, I grew up uh, thinking in English, you know, my dreams would be in English. So, right. so going, going, going to the U S felt like, you know, I'm going to one of these countries that, uh, that, uh, you know, is, is English speaking. So for all of these reasons, like, um, shifting you know my base to the us was very very attractive and um, and and the transition was actually quite smooth because uh, the, the my initial, my employer took care of the transition had a, we had a nice soft landing and i lived in new york initially which is a great place to be to especially if you're if you're a brown guy moving to a you know predominantly white country new york is a, a great place to land and sure. i can think of other countries that may not have been very as as smooth um, you know transition so for from all those perspectives uh, I, I look forward to the move and i really really enjoyed the move especially you know living in new york sure sure so uh, i mean very interesting and something uh, like a concept which actually came to my mind when you were narrating this was uh, something called the good boy syndrome it's essentially mm. very prevalent among uh, indian males you know wherein they try to be the good boys always in the good books of everyone playing it politically very very correctly 
and just doing the right things, following the herd, becoming engineers, going abroad to work, etc. So, do you right. identify with that? Like till this point in your life, were you, you know, a good boy always? You know, putting family first and always doing the right things in that sense. Oh, to the hilt! I played that role to the hilt for a long time. Yeah, uh, I would say that. Uh, I'm a little bit more balanced now, probably over the last 10 years. Uh, I've, uh, I would say 15 right. years, I've been I've struck a bit more of a balance. But uh, until 30 years old, I, I played the role of a good boy to the head. Absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, so that would explain a lot of the decisions that you made, right? Up until this point, like you, did you feel at all that there is that family pressure being the only child and, you know, all of that? So did that play? Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah, I did. And you know what, though, you know, so basically, I guess what happens is uh, if you, from a very young age, align yourself with uh, with those kinds of pressures and expectations, you don't feel you are actually not living your life. You know, you don't feel like you're you are doing something that you don't want to do, you know, or not doing something that you really want to do because you identify from a very early age in your life that this is what. I'm supposed to do when I'm, I'm I'm cool with it, right? It's only when you sort of have that space between you know the influences that shaped your thinking and 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 the reality that you live in, where you get the room to think and breathe and really reflect on. Okay, so being there, done that. Uh, is this what I wanted to do? If not, what do I want to do? You know that that stage for me probably came in 2003 or 2004 when I was 28. 29. So that's when the the shift started for me. But until then, there was no there was no conflict, you know, between what my uh, I guess the environment around me expected of me and what I expected and what I expected out of myself. Absolutely. So yeah, that is exactly the question that I was coming to next as to you know when, like you said, around 2003, 2004 was the mm. time that you actually you know took a step back and uh, realized what was happening and what you really wanted to do uh, with the rest of your life, etc. So right. what was that uh, situation or within your environment, what was that thing that prompted that uh, reflection? Yeah, so I guess first is basically, you know, as, as you know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, so, so when certain needs get met you kind of start going for the higher order needs and i guess uh, financially i was uh, secure enough at that point uh, not necessarily independent yet uh, you know i was 28 uh, still still fairly early in my career but uh, no longer was uh, motivated by just money right so at that point i started thinking about you know what, what do i really want to do with my life where do i want to spend my energy because that's the most precious precious resource that we have, right? Our focus and our energy, right? So, and um, it came to a point where I could no longer get myself to wake up and go and work in a work in a company that, that I could not resonate with for a cause that I could not relate to. So that's when I started, uh, you know, thinking about, okay, so I know I don't want to do this, but how do I figure out what I want to do? So that's when I read a lot of books and attended a lot of events, especially in the volunteering space, because I, uh, growing up, I knew that I want to do something that's uh, that's meaningful and valuable for the community. So I, I just didn't know what it was, you know, what what job it would be, what industry it would be, what role I would play. 
So I went to a lot of conferences, met a lot of people, talked to a lot of people, you know, read a lot of books. And two, I would say two things, I would say three things heavily influenced uh, my decision. First is uh, there's a conference called Net Impact. Net Impact is a conference. I didn't know at that point, but primarily for business schools. I was working in New York at the time, and this conference happened in Columbia University. So I attended this uni- uh, this conference, and it was all about how do you make a business uh, a force for social good, right? And I was so blown away by by the perspectives that were shared in this conference. Uh, and you could almost say that I was I I, I drank the Kool Aid, and I was. I wow. brainwashed myself into believing that you know yes this is exactly what I want to do because I didn't I didn't believe in charity and uh, but the argument that you can use market mechanisms to 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 make the world a better place really really resonated with me so that's one thing um, the the second thing is uh, you know the 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 mushrooming of programs in business schools that started um, focusing on social enterprise, right? So at that point, social entrepreneurship, you know, really started coming in its own, not just in terms of a concept, but real opportunities for for us to work in meaningful, meaningful employment opportunities in the social enterprise space. So it was almost like the perfect storm coming to the awareness, desire, and the opportunities happening. So, right. so I, I did this pursuit for about a year and I decided I wanted to my MBA, and I shortlisted universities um, by their ability to provide me that kind of exposure to social enterprise. All my essays were about, you know, how I, how I want to be a social entrepreneur. So I got into a few of the call. I applied to five schools. I got into four of them, and I chose the one that I that I thought you know best fit my personality and learning styles, which was the Tech School of Business at Dartmouth. Um, I had amazing conversations with with a few people over there that just made me instantly decide that this is where I want to spend the next two years of my life, you know, learning and growing into the person that I want to become. All right. All right. So even before you went into your MBA, you were sure that you wanted to be a social entrepreneur. Yeah, that was was the conviction that uh, drove the decision to do an MBA as opposed to you know, master of social work or other other programs that I was considering at that point. All right, all right. So I mean, that would have been a great boon for you during your MBA, right? Because you could focus all your learning and your uh, you know your efforts essentially towards like this one particular space that you want to enter after you're done with it. So did that mm. clarity sort of help, or you oh, think- absolutely. You know, it, yeah. it 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 because I had that focus everything that was offered to me in terms of electives and opportunities it was easy for me to pick and choose what i say yes to and what to say no to uh, for example i started the net impact uh, club at tuck you know we didn't have a net impact club but there's a conference that that changed the trajectory for me so i started the club and became the um, co-chair the of the club at tuck yeah yeah and and i I was one of the co-chairs for a business and sustainability conference at the first business and sustainability conference we organized at TAC. I was also awarded um, 
um, Julia Stell Award for, for meaningful community contribution. And that contribution primarily was uh, influencing the academic curriculum in order to have more social and environmental benefit case studies in the core curriculum. Because a lot of the core curriculum basically was uh, uh, about traditional businesses and you could only find the social business uh, context in the electives. And I felt it was, uh, it was not right because uh, you're continuing to bias and skew the kind of graduates that uh, you produce uh, because it's only those, it's almost like preaching to the choir. If you take this elective, you learn about you know, how to run a social business, but largely uh, in today's world, all businesses are supposed to be triple bottom line business, do good for the shareholders, and, but also do good to the, to the environment and, and to the people. So for me, that was a no brainer. So I spent a significant portion of my second year's um, you know, free time, you can say, uh, right. researching and lobbying for this change. And I'm really happy to see that the year after I graduated, they instituted you know, some of my recommendations into the core curriculum. So they introduced, swapped out traditional businesses uh, with uh, cases um, you know, that had more of a triple bottom line impact. So yeah, you're right, you know, basically all of my all of my efforts in business school were uh, focused on social entrepreneurship. Well, that's a tremendous story about how one man's clarity, you know, can impact the core curriculum of an Ivy League business school. That's just like mind blowing that you could actually achieve. And and, and, a, and a college that was uh, steeped in tradition, which which has generally been a little bit, uh, you know, um, I would say cautious in adapting to change. Um, yeah. but, but we had, a, I didn't do this a lot. There was a lot of, lot of, there were a lot I'm of, sure, people. I'm sure, but it started with, you know, with your clarity, right? With your, with the yeah. So I definitely kind of uh, added fuel, fuel to this, uh, movement. And I obviously took on, uh, um, a significant portion of the effort required to, you know, bring forth this change, but they're wonderful people, you know, as part of the community that, that were aligned and supported, you know, this shift. So I'm thankful to all of them for making it happen. And all the all the students that followed after us, you know, have benefited from that. And it really the society benefits as a result absolutely. because of that kind of education. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's tremendous. Uh, all right. Uh, so after that, then, you know, of course, you had this these amazing experiences at Tuck and uh, you were able to learn as much as you could about social entrepreneurship. But how did you actually go about you know, I mean, the most difficult part, as they say, is to actually execute in the real world. You know, they say that right. education is not the real world, whereas <laughs> they try to uh, sort of discourage you from doing the things that you were doing in B-School uh, when you actually step out. So how did you actually right. do that? Like, how did you translate your learnings into real world impact after that? Yeah, good point. Actually, we were at an interesting uh, time back then because when I was applying to social enterprise kind of jobs, for example, impact investment funds or social entrepreneurial consulting firms, um, majority of these firms were actually looking for talent that had uh, professional experience in those domains. You know, specifically, you know, for social uh, social impact funds, they wanted somebody with investment banking experience, and for social social entrepreneurial consulting firms they wanted people with traditional consulting experience which made sense right because they were the sector is new they don't want to kind of build the sector with people who knew didn't know what they're doing 
right? They wanted to kind of staff the sector with people who've been there, done that in the commercial, in the, in the corporate world, and would bring those best practices to the social enterprise world because the the industry was really shaping into a professionally run sector. Till then, social entrepreneurship had been, you know, wallowing in the world of nonprofits, which which right. translated to, you know, um, ineffective management practices, wastage and small scale, etc. But uh, 2005 to 2010 was a time when social enterprise was becoming uh, a more of a professionally run uh, sector with uh, with people who kind of run things at scale and more efficiently. So it made sense that they were, the sector was looking for that kind of talent. And what it meant for me was that although I had that passion and commitment to work in that sector, uh, I didn't have the skills to contribute to that sector meaningfully. So uh, my career development officers in all their infinite wisdom, bless them, you know, told me that the best way I can actually add value to that sector long term is to actually pick up skills in the corporate corporate world, specifically in the management consulting world, because then I would have a toolkit that I can bring to the sector to to make a real impact. Otherwise, I will just be a, you know a, a, a bag of passion and nothing else. Um, so, which was very sound advice, which I took, and that's why I kind of applied for management consulting roles. I was fortunate enough to you know secure an internship between my first and second year at a wonderful company. Oliver Wyman, great bunch of people, fantastic projects, and I had a lovely boss. So that internship converted into a, what they would call a PPO, pre-placement offer, I guess. Um, and yeah. so I joined Oliver Wyman after I graduated uh, as a strategy consultant, initially in the San Francisco office and then in their Boston office. And it's absolutely true that the skill set I picked up in terms of how you think, how you communicate, how you structure, your presentations and things like that were extremely valuable that are continuing to serve me well to this date. Right, so that was the initial step. Uh, once I felt, you know, um, you know, I had something to to work with, I then gradually shifted, you know, from from corporate strategy consulting, which is what Oliver Wyman does, to social enterprise strategy consulting, um, which uh, which was in the UK. I worked in London as a social enterprise consultant with uh, Eastside Consulting, which primarily worked in the field of homelessness. Um, they did other things as well, that, that, but that sector was their primary focus. Uh, so my job was to basically help charities that were working in the homelessness sector transition away from government funding um, and uh, become a little bit more self-sustaining by by doing revenue generating activities so my role was to help businesses and business models for these organizations so they can actually reduce their dependent on government money absolutely uh, that, that sounds like very sage advice that your career development uh, supervisors gave you there and uh, yeah the toolkit that you developed also sounds like something that you know we could learn a lot from and something that really helped you translate your passion into your into real skills that could be used in the social enterprise sector going forward right and that's advice i would have for anybody you know who's graduating from from uh, business school or undergraduate you know uh, economics degrees and stuff if you can get into a consulting firm early in your career that's probably the fastest learning curve that you can get on to 
which will enable you to kind of do all kinds of things later on in life. You know? So uh, I'm glad I was able to get that experience. Um, so that's advice that I would give for other young people who are graduating from business schools. Absolutely. Who, who are looking to work in social enterprise, or do something meaningful, you know, uh, it's good Absolutely. to kind of pick up those skills. Amazing. So uh, what point are we at now? Like when you went to <laughs> so, yeah. social enterprise sector, uh, the move London happened in 20, 2008. 2008. Okay. And uh, Authentica was established around 2012, 13, right? So Authentica started uh, slow burn, you know, so uh, the, right. the, the idea started in 2010, which is right. when I moved back to India. Uh, and that, that's actually uh, something that we could, uh, you know, mm, focus a little bit on as to what really mm, prompted that move, you know, because that's that's the turning point, you know, in a sense. When yeah, comes, you're right. Yeah. So, how, so how yeah, I mean, this also resonates with uh, with probably a good, uh, if you remember, we're talking about the good boy syndrome earlier. <laughs> right, right, right. Absolutely. So, so I guess my early, early move away from being just a good boy and, and into honoring my own inner voice started happening when I, you know, when I started looking for programs to do uh, when I entered my master's program. So in 2005, which is, a, I was 30 years old then. So that's when I started really kind of finding, finding myself. The journey started there, but I would say it kind of had a very significant milestone in 2010 because that's when I realized that um, I actually want to be in India. A number of different things conspired. Um, primarily, it's because when you're making a significant change like that, um, you either have extraordinary amount of resolve and resilience and surety about you, regardless of what the environment around you is. Uh, I don't, I don't know a lot of people who have that that kind of strength um, that you can overcome. You know, the the thinking around you to an extent that you can actually carve your own path. Um, or you just kind of put yourself in a situation where you can, where it becomes easy for you to be you, right? And I felt at that point, uh, you know, uh, when I was considering the choice between working in London, going back to the US or moving, moving back to India, what I wanted to really do at that point was uh, get closer to community, right? As, as I told you earlier, uh, I've been, I've always wanted to kind of do something meaningful in community. And I found it increasingly hard, you know, to be able to do that um, in, in a fairly comfortable, you know, country like the US or the UK. I mean, obviously there was a lot of homelessness in the UK, but right. um, uh, in order for me to kind of transition, I just needed to kind of feel it, you know, much closer. So, so that was a single probably biggest um, factor you know, that I wanted to kind of feel like I was doing something, you know, related to community development, which prompted me to come back to India. The other thing is that uh, my, my, I guess you can call spiritual beliefs for lack of a better reason, uh, right. were evolving and uh, were evolving and getting some clarity. And I felt like India would be a great place for me to, to, to surround myself or at least encounter people you know, that, um, that embodied that kind of wisdom, which, which I found it to be absolutely true. Um, so those were some of the reasons that I, I moved back to India. It also happens that uh, 
my girlfriend at that time who's also who's now my wife was based out of india in the middle of a master's program so logistically it made sense for me to come back to india and wait for her to finish her master's program as opposed to she kind of you know quitting her program and moving anywhere else absolutely absolutely all right uh, so i mean maybe you can take a sip of water you've been speaking for a while i'll just hold out a little bit over here um just no worries i also want to add uh, rahul is that um, um so there are countries like um, uh, the us and uk right i mean uh, they have a high um bur- they're high burn in terms of resources right so basically as long as you're making on a treadmill you know having a having a some right. sort of a stable income you're right. fine you know uh, you can pay you can pay your insurances your, your company pays your insurance you know uh, all your bills and automobiles and you know um right. stuff that you need to just kind of be um comfortable just just be just be right i mean not even comfortable just to survive you know it's a significant uh, significant amount of resources and you know, at least uh, you need at least 2 to 2500 dollars just to put a roof over your head pay insurance have an automobile you know pay right. pay your phones and stuff yeah so what happens then is if you want to kind of do something offbeat or uh, you know uh, if you want to follow your heart or you know or follow your passion it sort of narrows down the kind of things that you can do because you need those kinds of resources just to kind of stay afloat so you either have a good runway in terms of the resources that you would have saved which i didn't or you find you find other low burn places right. which don't consume those kinds of resources in order for you to provide enough of a runway to to pursue your passion and that's really really important because any given day right the 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 impulse uh, the to survive will mm-hmm. will will trump the impulse or or drive to um to yeah, to good. achieve higher higher order needs you know like self actualization and stuff yeah the maslow so, yeah yeah maslow's hierarchy right so yeah. um i would say this was a subconscious uh, message to me that like look if i want to really give myself a chance to pursue my passion i need yeah. to kind of pick a place that uh, where the resources would, would uh, go longer and it made sense for me to come back to india for that reason also and right. I, it's been le- 10 years 11 years now since i made that shift i have not regretted it a single day amazing amazing that that's a motivational story for a lot of young people abroad <laughs> like who plan to do good things in their own lives yeah. and for others as well you know So yeah so uh, so how long did this take this transition like did you you know wake up one day and say okay i'm going to india pack your bags and move or was it like a, a slow transition so to speak um it wasn't very slow but it was definitely a transition uh probably took me about 4 uh, months in total from the time that i that i knew that i wanted to start authentica at the time that i you know got my flight i mean landed in india you know on that flight from from, from san francisco so four months which is a little bit of a quicker transition than the past transitions like for example the transition from my software engineer to starting my mba program took me almost a year and a half because the process entailed 
you know, discovering what I want to do, applying to these programs and the GMAT and all that stuff, right? So uh, sure. in comparison, this was a much, much uh, quicker, um, quicker transition, but it was not like an you know, overnight. It took about four months. Absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, so that brings me to my next question, like about how you, like, uh, how did the idea for Authentica come to you? Like, was it like a vision that came to you one day or was it something that you were thinking about consistently for a while? Was it, you know, something that Siley came up with? How did this idea come mm -hmm. up with? Well, uh, it's funny because um, a really good friend of mine from high school and I were... Uh, we're basically having a beer in in in, in, a, in a in a sports bar in North Carolina, and uh, he lives there. My friend lives there, so I was visiting him, sure. and um, we talked about you know really authentic human experiences. You know, I, this happened. These kinds of conversations happen happen after a couple of beers. You know, for most people, uh, for most mortals, and uh, we were no exception. Uh -huh. We were yeah. talking about how you know. A majority of the interactions have become, you know, sterile and um, and and staged to a certain extent. It's a song and dance, you know, especially in the U.S. Like, you know, uh, greet somebody, hey, how are you doing? You know, most of the time, people are not even really waiting for an answer for these questions. It's just uh, going through the motions, right? So, so much on autopilot that uh, you know you sort of miss the authentic um, human interactions. And we were reminiscing on that, and we were both kind of, um, you know, inspired to come up with an idea uh, that would uh, that would capture this, you know, authenticity of uh, human connection, uh, which is when we came up with the idea of Authentica. My friend's name is Srinath, by the way, and uh, he and I came up with the original concept of Authentica in that sports bar in North Carolina. Subsequently, we actually uh, started developing a business plan. Uh, in the in the uh, elective entrepreneurship elective that he was taking when he was doing his MBA at uh, University of North Carolina, and uh, the the professor really really liked it and he thought it was a great idea for for starting a meaningful travel company like that. Wow. So, um, so after a couple of iterations, uh, you know, I, I after I decided to move back to India, we shifted the location of Authentica's idea from the US to to India. Fortunately for me, my wife loved that idea as well. So she and I co-founded Authentica in India uh, as a initially as a leisure travel company that provided meaningful experiences that celebrated human connection. So that was the original idea. We had itineraries in rural Rajasthan, you know, really remote parts of Himachal, Uttarakhand, Kerala, etc. Um, really off the beat, uh, off the beaten track experiences, which connected people to local community, and uh, and really, you know, peel the layers of culture so that travelers can have really, really deep and meaningful interactions with local culture. Wow, that sounds amazing. So, uh, yeah. So, how did the market respond to this idea initially? Was it like something that was welcomed with open arms, or was there friction when it came to people accepting? Uh, uh, good question. Uh, I don't. I don't want to blame it on the market, but we we didn't really kind of. Uh, we had amazing fun putting this together. Uh, my wife and I drove across the country, 
in a beat up uh, Tata Indica for close to six months. Uh, we traversed the country uh, twice, I would say, uh, from Kanyakumari all the way to the border of Nepal. Wow. on the india side of, uh, of course and um, yeah. all kinds of adventures you know just, india is just an amazing country man i mean absolutely so yeah. much so much wealth so much depth so much richness both in its culture and its people it just filled my heart with so much love for the country it's, it's a country that i fell in love with for the first time um despite having grown up here because i didn't experience that india when i was <laughs> when i was younger um, so coming back to India after all these years to, to see, you know, how people in, in the Pahari culture, you know, what they say up in the mountains, is just right. beautiful. So Maybe. very, very moving, especially for urban, urban kid like me to experience right. that kind of hospitality and, and most Atiti Debo Bhava, what they say, the guest is right. God, was right. practiced effortless elegance by yeah. people up in the up in the mountains so it was beautiful so it was not hard for us to want to celebrate this by getting people over but uh, honestly um we didn't either we didn't market it well or uh, you know the market was not ready for this kind of product uh, yeah. we didn't make a lot of money so after after about two two and a half years of doing this uh we we felt like we needed to pivot not the idea not that the idea was bad but somehow we we couldn't crack it, right? We yeah. felt like either the people who wanted these kinds of experiences would enjoy putting these itineraries together themselves as opposed to hiring a travel company like us, or there were people uh, who wanted a little bit more creature comforts than we were providing on this itinerary uh, for, for, you know, um, we were compensating or like almost biasing towards authenticity, which meant that you had to rough it a little bit, you know, with creature right. comforts. Right, so we felt like we were squeezed between the two. Um, sure. So that's when we did our first pivot. Absolutely. So, yeah. So how was that process? Like, how did you go about doing that pivot? Yeah. So we we reflected on what we had built, right? So what we had built was basically really, really amazing connections with communities, which included social entrepreneurs, nonprofits, individuals that are doing amazing work in the community and really special properties that you could stay in, whether it be homestays or you know, heritage houses and things like that. So we thought, okay, so we have these resources, you know, or assets that we built um who would value something like this and what's the value in this right so we basically thought you know ideally right. academics should value this kind of knowledge because this is not knowledge that's you know screaming loud at you on on uh, okay. social media or you know pop culture right this is very right. subtle you know almost not noticeable right so we thought right. academic communities would appreciate uh it's harder to find um knowledge you know that's embedded in local 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 wisdom uh, generally kind of not captured by media as much so that's why we we thought let's actually see if the academic com communities value that and uh, it was great we found some very very supportive supportive uh, universities uh, i want to thank university of north carolina in particular because um, when we pitched our idea of a study tour that would combine you know learning about the business in india along with sustainability they were initially a little bit skeptical but they allowed us to 
program one day out of their 14 days of programming in India and, and told us, okay, so here's one day that you can program for us with the kind of content that you, that you think would be useful for our students, but wow. we'll take care of the rest of the 13 days. Today, you know, we program, uh, we contribute almost all the 14 days or these 14 days programs um, because uh, the trust and the faith, you know, the university has placed in us has been, uh, we've we basically kind of honored it with, with making really powerful programs happen for the universities. And this was a revelation for us because we found that, okay, this is something that is of value. We were just kind of knocking on the wrong doors earlier. Universities do value this, and uh, we were able to build on that. Um, we initially started working only within India, and um, the feedback that we got from our universities were, was that they've done programs in India for many years, but it's the first time they're actually, you know, really uh, having high-quality logistics experience being delivered on the ground. Um, that's when we knew that we had something special. Wow! Wow! So uh, that, that's really insightful about how, you know, just narrowing your focus and changing your target audience led you to, you know, finding your product market fit and uh, sort of snowballed into this organization, which, which really impacts, uh, this, I mean, an, an academic space, which nobody was really thinking about uh, before you guys did it. So in India, it still remains, uh, you know, in India, yeah. there's still, um, you know, there's still not a, lot of, not a lot of players who are doing this, which is good for us because we Absolutely. kind of are positioned well to, well to serve that market. Um, yeah. And what was interesting was that um, uh, there was another, other transition. So this was a pivot, obviously, from leisure travel into academic travel, right. but uh, that was the external pivot in terms of the market that we are going after. I want right. to share one more of a, one more internal pivot, right? So right. this is for any entrepreneur kind of going through a journey, especially co-preneurs, you know, husband and wife or, or a couple that's doing this together. This may Absolutely. be relevant for them as well. Right. Is, uh, so 2013 is when we did our first academic group. And until 2016, for three years, uh, my wife and I, it was just the two of us. We were doing everything ourselves from booking train tickets to... Uh, to putting together proposals, to attending conferences, and uh, right. doing pitches, uh, lifting the toilet seats to make sure that you know this is a hotel worthy of putting our guests and everything we were right. doing, right? right. Um, so there was a there was a sh turning point in 2016 when when we were like feeling burnt out. We were we uh, were extremely unhealthy in the sense that uh, we we neglected our health and um, burning the candle on at both ends. And we were like, hey, isn't this supposed to be fun? <laughs> Why is this feeling like we're getting burnt out in the process? Uh -huh. And uh, yeah. we had we had a little bit of a moment of reckoning in sense like we either start saying no to business, right? Because we can't take on more or we decide that it's not just going to be a two person company. You know, well, we would want to hire people, right? So, so when that was really hard, but important decision for us to make. And fortunately, at that point, both of us aligned on this decision to say yes to growth, right? So in 2016 is when we registered Authentica as a private limited company, right? So I mean, that's that is sort of putting a stake in the ground saying that, hey, we, we want to actually be a serious a player, a company 
that is going to grow and hire people and and we thought like okay well you know the minute it's no longer just the two of us it doesn't really matter if it's a one person you know three person company or a 30 person company right so yeah. it, because it's beyond just you so yeah. we sort of made a made a conscious decision to to scale at that point and the company did really well you know the company went from 25 lakhs in revenue in 2016-17 to 7, 7 crores revenue in 2019-20 um, without wow. any external external funding. So right. it was a complete, completely bootstrapped. Um, so we grew the team also. The team at, at, um, at its peak was about 10 people before the pandemic hit and it was on course for growing more. We were right. going to be a 14 to 15 person company had things things that had the pandemic not happened you know but uh, right. yeah right i mean it is of course, that's something that we just have to accept uh, you know something yeah, yeah yeah it's all good and it also tested our business right so it right. tested us uh what's uh you can't be a b- good businessman if you haven't faced a couple of down cycles right so right. yeah <laughs> um, so it was very necessary for us and i'm uh, now that the pandemic is al- almost over i can say that uh, we're grateful for Right. Who he, who, what it had made us be, in order to survive. I wouldn't say thrive, but definitely survived very well with the, most of the team intact, um, right. and in good spirits. Right. right. So it has made us all stronger, more resilient, and uh, better, better leaders. I feel the right. pandemic because right. demand it, it it required us to step up our game. All right. All right. So I mean. Just now, I think this could be a little bit of a philosophical question as mm. to, you know, what were your top three learnings when it came to, you know, establishing an organization, like versus just versus it being a business with just the two of you, but mm. going to a 10 member or a 15 member organization, which is, you know, an organization is its own organism, has its own sort of hive mind. And, you know, that's the metaphor for organization that is mm. you in industry mm. so and you are sort of the brain behind it so mm. what kind of learnings and what kind of changes did you see within yourself when you went through that process yeah so i guess the biggest change is uh, you know you move you shift from becoming from being a doer to to being a leader right so the most important job when you're a two-person company just you doing everything is is in order to be you need to be able to execute really really well right so whereas the minute you kind of start hiring people who will actually execute on your behalf your role becomes more of um, you know sharing the vision you know of uh, where we are going and and inspiring people to put in their best work and to be honest, we are still growing. Uh, we can't say that we've, uh, we've we have the secret sauce, but we are definitely better today than we were three, four years ago um, in that respect. So that is a big shift, you know, of what your role is as the leader of the organization, as opposed to an operator of um, of um, of company. Right. So that is number one. Um, second thing is uh, is I would say creating growth. You know, not just for for you, you know, or the company, but for everybody within the company, right? So, if you want to have attract the best people and and retain them, you want to be able to kind of create pathways for growth for them. You know, this is obviously 
common sense everybody talks about it but uh, to uh, to actually kind of apply that in an organization uh, it requires you to think differently it requires you to think about okay so if i'm having, having somebody join me as a program manager today what's his pathway what's her pathway to growth okay program manager to senior program manager what can what can they become you know 5 years from now 10 years from now not that they going to stay with us but they need to be able to see that kind of growth and we need to build uh, that kind of growth engine that will allow people to grow within the organization so that's number 2 right and um, and i guess third i would say um, I have to think about this a little bit. Uh, All right, we don't we have to go like have three learnings. We can come back maybe <laughs> later at some point. That's not that's okay. Uh, so I would say, I mean, if you don't if you don't mind me sharing, you know, I, yeah. I would like to say the third thing. All right. So first is obviously you know shift in shift in your role, you know, from being right. an operator to 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 sort of you know being being yeah, a person leader. Patient yeah, patient yeah. leaders, right? Second, right. second thing is actually uh, growth is not just for you, but for the entire team, right? You right. Kind of think of that. Right. And third is you know how do you sort of um, ownership of the business, right? So right. when when you're a proprietorship, you know it's all about just the proprietor, right? So everything it starts and ends with the proprietor. The buck stops with the proprietor. The minute you transition into a private limited company, then you have you have the promoters who usually are the primary stakeholders. um especially for a bootstrapped company like authentica right. then then recently you know i've been thinking about um so if we have product market fit mm-hmm. does it make sense to actually put more fuel you know and, and grow faster right because we know that we have a winning formula there's a certain right. segment of customers that we can acquire deliver a certain type of product at um, at a very high you know customer satisfaction level our nps score is 94 on a scale of minus 100 to plus uh, 100 so uh, anything above 70 is world class so we do really well you know customers who work with us are really really happy with us so if you have that kind of uh, that kind of um, reputation right. and you have the resource to deliver is it isn't it doesn't it make sense to to pour more fuel uh, to grow this bigger so what this what i'm saying trying to say here is that does it make sense for your company to actually raise money right so raise money so that you can actually increase the pace of growth for right. for for the organization as a result fulfilling those um, you know two things first is you know getting closer to the vision that you painted you know and the second is basically creating the growth growth opportunities for your team obviously there is good in it for the, for the for you as well because you would rather own you know 10% of a 100 million dollar company than 100% of a 1 million dollar company right <clears throat> so oh. so thinking about that has been a recent shift in my in in my thinking that hey we have product market fit we have a good thing going so how about we raise money so that we can actually grow faster and uh, and uh, create more opportunities for more people both within the organization today and those who are going to join tomorrow so that's something that uh, doesn't come easily when you start because you're trying to do everything on your own with your own money but for me it is a big shift because the minute you think about raising money it's like getting your first employee right it's right. it's a, it's a phase shift it's a zero to one shift 
you, had, yeah. you, you had no employees and then you have employees. So then you didn't have anybody, you know, who's on your board, you know, telling you what to do. And then suddenly if you raise money, you're going to have somebody on your board, you know, influencing decisions, hopefully in a good way, right? For the, for yeah. the health of the company. It's a learning that started for us now. I, I can't tell you that uh, it's um, what's come out of it. <laughs> I don't know. What I can tell you is that we are, we are raising money now precisely with the shift in thinking because we have product market fit. Oh, amazing. Amazing. Uh, that's really insightful about, you know, what it takes to be at the helm of a growing company like Authentica is today. So, uh, I mean, that's also a very smooth transition into my next question, you know, just to complete the three questions framework. Uh, so, sure. you know, what, what comes next now or what are your, I mean, of course, you spoke about raising money and sort of expanding right. uh, the scope of things now that you have product market fit. But have you, I mean, uh, last time we spoke, you spoke about a product that you were thinking of launching in the right. Indian market right. targeted at Indian students. That's or, right. Right. So maybe you can speak a little about that. Absolutely. So, so when we kind of had this pandemic hit, you know, we, it, Initially, uh, we we tried to pivot and create something in the virtual study abroad space. Um, it did not. It, we made some some. We had some success with it, but not a lot because uh, students don't really want to study abroad virtually. You know, the study abroad is more about the abroad than the study. Right. Uh, we we realized so, and obviously the pandemic has been a long, you know, long event at least in the relative history of um, our company. Um, which meant that the business was set back, um, you know, uh, significantly. And what the forecast is, you know, for or at least for this part of the world that we operate in, which is Asia, um, it's going to be another three, four years before we really get to pre-pandemic levels in terms of volume of travel, particularly for the customer segments that we cater to, which is the universities. Uh, risk averseness, liability issues, uh, you name it. It's going to take a while. At least that's the forecast. So we didn't want to wait that long for the business to recover. So, but we are committed to, you know, the the impact that we want to create. So we were looking at, okay, so what is the business that we want to start, which would number one, you know, um, be true to our core core vision of, you know, um, unlocking human potential, which is what we've been doing with Authentica. Second is is uh, virtual, you know, travel independent because we wanted to make sure that, uh, you know, a, an event like this, any disruption to travel will not stop the business. Uh, number three, you know, where, which is close to home, you know, close to home in terms of solving problems that are really close to our heart. So which is when we came up, I discovered this idea uh, of, uh, of skilling. You know, as you know, uh, Rahul, India has a huge skill issue uh, in terms of fresh yeah. graduates. Yeah, skill gap. Yeah, so uh, more than 50 million students, uh, stu 50 million youth between the ages of 18 to 34, so 18 to 24 are unemployed in India, which is the largest in the world. You know, India has the highest youth population. India also has the highest unemployed youth population yeah. by a significant fa uh, multiple compared to the close to the second biggest, which is China, which is about 18 right. million. So we have three times more unemployed youth than a country that has more population than us, right? Um, so which is which is a little bit sad given given that India had one of the first universities in the world and, uh, you know, Indians are considered, you know, fairly intelligent and smart academically, but we have these numbers that we're dealing with. 
So we started digging into it and found out that uh, uh, the reasons for this unemployment is primarily a skill gap. And the skill gap uh, is as much on the soft skills such as communication, logical thinking, critical thinking, etc., as it is on the hard skills uh, that are techni technical. So we wanted to kind of address this problem. So we came up with, uh, with a holistic product. You know, it's called Skillaroo. Uh, if you want to visit, it's www.skillaroo.org, and uh, the product basically is um, is uh, is a holistic program that treats you as a whole individual. You know, a lot of the solutions out in the market today basically saying that, hey, we'll make you, we'll get you, get you a job as a developer. Hey, we'll make you a product manager, but um, they don't ask a more fundamental question of, who do I really want to be? Right, so what do we really want to be? So I'm an engineer now, I'm doing my MBA now, but it doesn't necessarily mean that this is what I was meant to do. I may have ended up here due to a lot of, you know, uh, factors such as parental pressure, society's pressure, peer pressure. So, but we, we, it's great that we live in a world where our opportunities are probably more than any other time in the world that we've, we've lived in because you can be an engineer, but you can end up as a you know model or or a, or an actor or a singer. You can be an engineer. You can be, be a you can be a cricketer. You know, like Venkatesh Iyer is right now, and Anil Kumble was earlier. So there are so many avenues that you can go, regardless of what you're currently doing, primarily because of the opportunities that have been created in the world. So what we are doing differently is starting with a fundamental question of what's an ideal career for me based on who I am what I'm interested in, in, what my purpose is, what my values are, and what kind of impact I want to have in the world, right? We start with this question. So we devised a, a really unique and pioneering uh, assessment, psychometric assessment that's modeled on the Ikigai philosophy, you know, identifying what I'm good at, what I'm passionate about, what the world needs, and what I get paid for, right? At the intersection of these four circles is this, you know, sweet spot of the ideal career. Right? So we start there and help students figure out what their ideal career is. And then we give them a series of resources such as small virtual projects or mentoring sessions with industry experts, soft skills training, even internships, so that they can actually validate these career choices that we are, we are suggesting for them. So by the time they finish the program, they're going to be much more clear about who they are, what they want, and what kind of role they want to be in in addition to that, they'll have the skills necessary in order to go into these roles and be successful and fulfilled in them. We think it's a really unique offering in the market that treats the individual as a whole, not just as a widget that needs to be fitted into the industry, just like another, any other cog in the wheel, right? So right. really excited about this, uh, this new product. Um, it's uh, the beta version is launched already. Uh, people can sign up and experience it. Uh, the full wow. product will be launched in uh, in February, but it's ready to be, you know, you can try it out today if you want to. Sure, I'll definitely try it out. It sounds like a firecracker product, honestly, and, you know, something that has, like, massive potential, especially in our country. Uh, you know, I was actually uh, reading about this skill assessment space, and uh, mm. actually the government of Singapore has... Uh, something very similar to what you were speaking about 
wherein they actually assess uh, Singaporeans on a regular basis and suggest uh, uh, skill development programs that they can take and the which the government actually subsidizes or actually uh, delivers for free. So this is something that the government is doing in Singapore on a national level. So, I mean, you can obviously, un like, that. that's an indicator of how, you know, universal the appeal of a product like this is. So yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm very excited to see how that goes. Uh, cool. So, yeah, I look into it. Thank you. Sure, sure. Uh, so, anyways, I think we've uh, spent uh, an hour now, and we've covered a lot of space. Uh, so, just like you know, just some ending questions, uh, maybe one or two, and then maybe we can let you go. So, sure. uh, so yeah. So, I mean, of course, this entire journey sounds like of sounds like a book honestly and uh, something that a lot of us can learn from uh, but what uh, according to like i want to know more about the self improvement journey that uh, you've been on you know you last time i i mean we met i remember you spoke about attending uh, tony robbins's seminar uh, i think in singapore and uh, generally right. you've been you you were working with a coach uh, for better leadership development and better and you know learning better skills and i you you've always struck me as somebody who's always trying to improve and trying to learn so how, how do you keep it up like how do you reinforce that attitude and what is it that motivates you to constantly get better and to you know be a lifelong learner in that sense <laughs> well, yeah. there's probably there's probably i start with the uh, the pessimistic yeah. view of or the cynical view of this to begin with right so it's um, Anybody who has a feeling of inadequacy is constantly trying to be a better version of themselves so they can be quote unquote good enough, right? So well, not probably <laughs> no. Well, that's why I said I started the start of the cynical piece, right? And yeah. Honestly, uh, right. Uh, the reason I say that is that uh, it's easy to kind of believe uh, um, that you know if you are actually trying to be a better version of yourself, it's always a good thing. It's not necessarily true. Um, it's generally good as long as you're able to accept who you are right now completely. You know, without without judging yourself, right? Because, right. look, um, we have to be our best friend. You know, which means that you know, if imagine what you would do, what you tell your friend if your friend screwed up big time, you know, and uh, is going through a hard time, right? So, what would you tell them? How would you kind of deal with them? Um, you should deal with the, yourself the same way, you know, with a lot of compassion. Uh, with a lot of self-acceptance right so Absolutely. if you don't then basically you don't um, you don't enjoy being you so you're constantly trying to be somebody else so that you can actually accept yourself and you know uh, and and be okay with yourself so i guess i want to preface my answer you know with that first before i kind of share you know my motivation and my own personal development journey right sure. um, so so yeah, I mean, I've been I've been a big fan of nonfiction books ever since I was young. I remember picking up my first book in psychology, uh, I'm OK, You're OK, and games people play. And I was probably 14 or 15 years old. I could, like, I could possibly not be smart enough to really understand what, what was being told in that book. But those, these books attracted me, and they continue to continue to attract me today. So I'm a voracious reader. I read at least. Uh, at least one book a week, if not more. Unfortunately, these days with audiobooks, it's it's become a little bit uh, easier. Um, so, 
um, what this means, and today also that you get uh, you get a wide um, range of people that you can learn from, both living and dead, right? Both contemporary knowledge as well as ancient wisdom uh, from the Hindu scriptures and things like that. So I think it's great that we have all this knowledge at our disposal. Um, what I've learned over the years is that uh, this needs to be tempered with itself acceptance i told you uh, otherwise what happens is that you just the more you are learning and trying to be a better version of yourself it is implicitly implying uh, that hey you are doing a, you're trying to be a better version of yourself because you know it's not written but it's implied that you're not good enough today and that's actually not a healthy space to come from when you're trying to be a better version of yourself so that's my I would say learning from uh, from the self-improvement yeah. journey. Um, so my, my my bookshelf continues to be stacked with uh, self-improvement books, but I have a different attitude about it. Right? I'm really happy with who I am today. Um, right. Maybe it's, it's age. You know, with age, you get a little bit of that uh, self-acceptance. But I like to think that it's a, it's a shift in my evolution as well. That I'm that I can try to be a better version of myself without really judging me myself for who I am today. I'm, I'm not sure if that's the kind of answer that you <laughs> were looking no, for, but exactly I think anybody right. pursuing self self improvement should keep that in mind. That right. uh, definitely try to be a better version of yourself tomorrow, but right. be very kind and compassionate and completely accepting of who you are today. Absolutely, absolutely and uh, yeah so how do you keep yourself motivated though like you know when things are not going your way or i mean of course there are going to be bad days right on in our journey on this planet so what picks you up what makes you you know jump out of bed in the morning yeah these days it's tennis <laughs> so uh, yeah. uh, i play tennis uh, tennis from 6 a.m to 8 a.m in the morning to be honest that's a great right. way to start a day and uh, you know who doesn't want to play in life right life is play uh, some are more literal than others <laughs> also, some forms of play are more literal than others um, exactly. and tennis is a very literal form of play right so i get up uh, you know at 5 30 primarily because i have i have a bunch of people that i'm going to be playing tennis with and they're waiting for me um, but i guess um, uh, more you know to i guess to really answer the question that you're asking it is um, it is the uh, metaphorical way. Hey, I have one more day on this planet. Let me kind of go and uh, swing for the fences and uh, really make something happen, right? So every day, um, the pandemic has been a real eye opener, right? So initially, you know, there's this whole, this curve, I forget the name of the curve, but you kind of go into shock, denial, acceptance, blah, blah, blah. Um, right. That curve, uh, I'm sure you'll, you yeah, probably yeah. have a good idea about right yeah, yeah, so yeah. so we kind of went through that curve right so and then then you realize that you know if you feel like a victim right so things are happening to you um then you kind of have that victim mentality or why is this happening to me why does it happen to me now and stuff but if i adopt the thinking that things are happening for you you know meaning things are happening for me meaning that everything that's happening, including the pandemic, is is an event that is meant to kind of help me be a better version of myself. You know, oh. so if um, uh, so having the 
you know nimbleness to 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 adapt and pivot you know the business having the practices uh, to to help you get through the day despite you know the world not being a, such a happy place to be in um, our our habits that you develop in times of stress and challenge right that that serves you for life right these are habits that will help you anytime you kind of um, uh, get into a funk and I, I feel like that's a that's something that I've learned from this pandemic is how do we kind of create your own inner inner sunshine when things are bleak on the outside right and I hope I hope I get to keep these uh, these habits and practices that I built uh, for me it's basically you know exercising regularly which uh, physiologically puts it you puts you into into a better state watching watching the thoughts you know um, anytime uh, a thoughts of despair um despair creeps into my head um i have to counter this remember to counter this with more positive thoughts you know things about things have gotten better in the past things will get better in the future so having some anchor statements that can help you get through tough phases um number three having people around right uh, it's just been a blessing to to have uh, wonderful people around to share to to um to love you know these are these are things that you kind of learn to appreciate you know when when life slows down around you and these things have uh, i would say renewed my enthusiasm for life um like i'm 46 today and i have never been fitter more positive more enthusiastic ever before in my life so i would say i'm kind of at the best you know at my peak of my peak life of today life. Yeah. yeah 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 and 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 you know anybody can do that at any age amazing amazing i think that's the perfect way to sort of close our conversation for today and uh really really enlightening speaking to you and you know listening to your journey and your insights uh from what seems like a very very eventful life so yeah all the best on your journey and for the listeners if you've stuck with us so far i mean i'm sure you've learned a lot today and uh, yeah, we're looking forward to more sunshine like Ravi mentioned <laughs> in our lives. All right. Thank you, guys. And thank you so much, Ravi, for sharing your Thank thoughts. you, Rahul. Thank you for all the opportunity to share my story. I really enjoyed uh, sharing it with you and your audience. And I wish your podcast all the best. I think you're doing something really, really important. And uh, may the force be with you. Thank you so much, Ravi.